Hello and welcome to the latest Financial Wellbeing Podcast. My name is David Lloyd. Uh, let's introduce you to the usual crew. Tomo, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Not David. And listeners, we have to apologise. David, unfortunately, can't be with us today for personal reasons, but he will be back next um, episode. So it's just me and Tomo today, maybe with a little little sneaky um, bit of Tammy, producer Tammy in as well. So uh, what does David usually say? Right, Chris, what have we got on today's podcast? Well, David, we have an interview with Sarah Newcomb, who is a psychologist and all-round awesome person. I think she's the most, one of the most interesting people I've ever spoken to. David Roll. That sounds really interesting, Chris. Now, first of all, um, we have... <laughs> you know what we mustn't do, Tomo? What we really mustn't do, we mustn't tell David about all of the awful sound problems we've just had. <laughs> no, 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 we can't. Listeners, what, what, what you need to know is basically every recording session we spend about 15 minutes with David trying to uh, rework his various microphones or, or, or speakers and we're just set that and every time we have these issues and we mock him for it and we have literally just spent the last 10 to 15 minutes struggling ourselves <laughs> um, but you missed out David you missed out on mocking us over that <laughs> you thought nobody tell him because he won't listen to this episode will he no, so not a chance <laughs> Right. Uh, so before we have our, our listen to, to Sarah Newcomb, we've got tight ass Tomo. Actually, uh, I want to just ask something else, Tomo. I kind of feel a little bit like teacher's not here and we can mm. do whatever we like. It's mm-hmm. like the last game of term and we brought our board games into play. <laughs> uh, I, that is the it, it, that's probably the most boomer thing you've ever said, Chris. <laughs> it's not, I can tell you. <laughs> so I brought a board game in. I've brought in Colditz. Do you have you ever played Colditz? No. And uh, Tammy is our is a is a board game expert, and she's smiling because she knows Colditz. It's a great game. Um, uh, my brother used to play with my brother and, and some of his friends, and my brother was always the German because it's the most fun <laughs> role to play. So, what board game have you brought in, Tomo? I've brought Articulate. Are you familiar is that with a this board game? Technically, well, I mean, there's a board you have to go around. You can't just follow a simple rule, can you? Hang on, Tammy, <laughs> nod or not, that's a board. Is that a board? Yeah, yeah thank He's you. allowing Tam- it in. All right, Tam- then. All right. Oh, it's great. Although the first time I ever played it almost resulted, me and, me and Lindsay played it as a pair and with some friends, and we were almost not married. There's a good <laughs> chance that we would not be married off the back of that. <laughs> what do you mean you can't? How can you not understand my instructions of what X, Y, and Z is? Um, yeah, on the clock, very tense, but it uh, turns out that we are pretty good at it. And yeah. I am far too competitive also. So <laughs> board games and me don't mix very well. That's the one reason why I will not play Monopoly. Too many fights. Too many fights. Yeah, yeah. And over money as well, which is quite quite apt for this. Yeah, Monopoly is a funny one. We, there's this great one called Monopoly Deal, which is like a short version. It's like a card game and it takes the principles of Monopoly and it's brilliant. You can... Me and Lindsay quite like that. If we're if we're uh, usually when we're on holiday and put the children's bed, having a drink and playing Monopoly deal, it's great. But I'll tell you what, it does bring out some interesting uh, interesting approaches to finance, and you're really trying to stick it to them. And yeah, I want my six sixteen million pounds worth of rent, and you're going to pay me now. <laughs> I I am um, a friend of mine has got a a tip on how to win at Monopoly every single time, right? Do you want to hear this tip? Guaranteed win. And it is within the rules, he insists. What you do is you buy your first set and then you buy every single house and hotel in the game. There's no rule that says you're only allowed five houses or four houses and what makes a hotel. Um, you're not allowed to put them on, but there's nothing stopping you from buying them. So you buy them all up so that nobody else can buy one. Imagine playing Monopoly and somebody does that. You'd want to smack them, wouldn't you? <laughs> And then we go back to how board games can create these. No, no, they're there for fun. Most of my board <laughs> games now are for, you know, under sixes, under six-year-olds. You can imagine they're riveting. Um, as, <laughs> as I'm going through yet another one of these games that now my three-year-old Bella doesn't really understand. And we kind of just go through the motions, but she loves it. I, on the other hand, yeah. I can, ima- I, can Im- I can imagine you playing Monopoly, Tomo. Tight-ass Tomo plays Monopoly. <laughs> no, you don't want to buy that. Save your money. <laughs> <laughs> Mayfair's not good value. No, get your money. <laughs> um, Old Kent Road all the way. 
Let's bring in Tammy, because you are the world's expert on board games. So what board game have you brought for last day of term? Uh, I would bring family favourite Ticket to Ride. We love that one, yeah. And we don't mind which map either. Maybe multiple maps, soon as it's the last day of term. <laughs> <laughs> love your attitude. Right, uh, our normal section, Titas Tomo. I believe Tammy's got one for us today before we bring in... I'll have to think of a new sobriquet for Tomo, Master of Meanness and Prince of Parsimony and all that kind of stuff. Um, but before we get to you, Tammy, what's your Titas Tomo tip? Okay, um, my tip would be to mosey on down the world food aisle in your local supermarket. Um, it's something I do because surprisingly, a lot of things like the tinned food and spices are a lot cheaper than even the uh, own brand supermarket items. And in the case of the spices, you often get more for less as, uh, money as well, which is great. Brilliant. Nice. So because you told me about that tip, I actually bought two packets of lentils in the world aisle just the other day. So I'm putting it into practice. Thank you, Tammy. Great tip. Great right, Tomo. Bring it on, man. The uh, Titan of Tysassiness. Titan of Tysassin. Tomo, over to you. Yeah, David, really looking forward to you coming back. I mean, <laughs> the, listeners, the listeners certainly are. God, this is like pulling teeth, isn't it? Um, <laughs> do you know what? This, this one was this week. As we're recording this, it is October half term. And there is often some great deals for taking your children out for food. Um, on the cheap and I took uh, I, I was looking after Bella for the day my, my three-year-old um, it was just the two of us Lindsay was was away with my with my eldest and was like do you know what I'm not cooking I'm just not no not doing it I put my feet <laughs> dragged my feet over it not not cooking um, but I did know about a great deal and it happened to be at Bella Italia a, a well-known chain where I could have an adult's meal and if I ate between four and six p.m cost Bella a pound, well, it didn't cost Bella, it cost me a pound, for Bella to have a three-course meal, which obviously off the kids' menu, but I thought it was fantastic value. Um, but that's an example. But where can you actually find this information? Well, there's a place called moneysavingcentral.co.uk, and it's forward slash kids-eat-free. And uh, on there, they give all of the uh, various outlets that are offering cheap uh, cheap meals or cheaper meals for kids during half term, school holidays, etc. Loads of examples and a great way for parents to save money um, and actually not have to cook a meal for a change. Do you have to have your own kids? Well, Does, or is there a limit to how old they can be? Can I take my 20 year old and 23 year old in? I mean, I'm sure there's some small print somewhere, but it, it says children and there's nothing that says how old a child is. Well, how old your child is. This is actually, there's a point. Whenever I'm talking to clients, we're talking about how are the children? And you realise their children are now 30 years old. And it's like really funny the way you said, how are your kids? Well, my, my, kid, my, my kid now has two kids of his own sort of thing. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's always an interesting one. But yeah, they are always your children, as my, my parents often, often remind me. Yeah. Um, right. Let's get on to the awesome Sarah Newcomb. Uh, Sarah is a behavioural scientist. Uh, she was director of financial psychology at the massive investment company Morningstar for eight years. And she now uh, is a consultant and runs something called the Thrive Financial Empowerment Centre, of which you will explain more in my chat with her. So let's have a listen to my chat with Sarah Newcomb. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's wonderful to be here. Where do we find you today, can I ask? Yeah, so I live in central Maine which is uh, the most northeastern state in the United States, right on the border of Canada. And um, it is absolutely beautiful from June until September. And the rest of the year, we either do winter sports or like me, my winter sport is sitting inside reading a book. <laughs> so, look, Sarah, um, I, I've told our listeners about a bit about your background, but uh, not about what you're up to now and about Thrive. Yeah, so uh, Thrive is uh, the Thrive Financial Empowerment Center, and um, the the mission of this is really rooted in uh, the fact that I've 
been feeling for a long time that what uh, what I feel I'm observing in the um, financial education space and in just financial understanding is, um, or let me let me say what I feel that I am observing in the financial lives of Americans, because that's my reference point, but I, I have a, a strong hunch that this is not just an American issue, um, is a, a generation or two of people who feel incredibly disillusioned and, um, and hopeless about their financial future. I don't think that the solution to that is uh, mathematics-based financial education. I don't think that that's what's going to help people to take control of their money when what's really happening is generations of evidence that has disempowered people. Um, and so I am on a mission to create empowerment-based financial education. Um, Which is a great expression. So do you want to just explain a bit more what that means? Yeah, so I I really I believe that the key to uh powerful life changing financial education is not mathematics, though I love mathematics. I actually do it for fun. Uh, <laughs> but but I don't believe that that's the key to really life changing financial education. I believe the key is psychology and understanding how to recognize and um, and change unhealthy, disempowering financial beliefs and attitudes and um, that hold us back. Now, that's not to say that I, I am not claiming that there aren't macroeconomic systemic issues that hold people back. There are. Um, and those, but those by their nature are large societal issues and so they require large societal solutions. Um, in the meantime, each individual um, can form a more powerful relationship with their own resource management. And that's what I want to help people do is within the confines and the challenges that they face, how can we put them on the hero's journey to become the hero in their own financial life? Fantastic. Um... Can I offer my own two pennies on this one, actually, if I may, Sarah, Please. which is not what you're supposed to do as an interviewer, but uh, I can't help myself on this one because financial education in the UK um, has become quite a big thing, particularly in the workplace. But it all starts with what is a mortgage and how does compound interest work? And uh, I, my argument, and I've had this argument with a few people now, is that's the wrong way around. They said that we love your financial well-being, Chris, we'll add that on top of our financial education. I say, no, 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 no. You've got to start with the theories of happiness with understanding what brings you joy. And then you can learn the technicalities of how to use money to achieve it. But you've got to get it that way around. So I love, I'm, I might just use the phrase empowerment based financial education all the time from now on. Wonderful. <laughs> maybe, look, maybe look clever if nothing else. <laughs> um, so look, um, one of the phrases that you, you use in your book loaded is money stories, um, which I suspect is right in this financial education space that you've just been talking about. So can you explain what you mean by money stories? Yeah. So each of us walks around the world with different narratives in our heads about our lives and what they mean. We are all creating story. And this starts for real um, in our during adolescence when we start to craft the story we tell ourselves about our own lives. And at any point, if you ask someone to tell you their life story, it will have a narrative structure to it. Um, and we all do this naturally. We create a narrative of our lives, but we do the same thing when it comes to money's role in our lives. And yet we, we are not conditioned to think critically or even really like clearly about the story we tell ourselves or the story that money plays, the role that money plays in our life story. Um, I mean, if you were just, just, here's a really simple question. If you, if you made a movie of your life and money was a character in the story of your life, would it be a hero or a villain? You know, maybe a little bit of both at different times, but you can't, you it's can't accept, right, right, right. For many, <laughs> for many, it's the pursuit, it's the chase. Um, but so um, for many, it's, it's been a, a, quite a disappointment. Um, but um, the, the point is that 
we need to understand and um, and and scrutinize the stories that we tell ourselves about money because if we if we don't, then what is likely to happen is that it, those stories subconsciously or semi-consciously affect our financial decision making um, through emotional and uh, logical processes. And whether or not it's being helpful or hurtful, we we will just be at the whims of these unconscious uh, stories. So I want to give you an example of a financial story so that I can put some skin on this. So one of the stories that I've been thinking about a lot lately is um, is the story of, um, just think about anyone in uh, who has family history that goes back a few generations to slavery. You know, my, my grandmother's a hundred years old. She, uh, she was alive when, um, certain events happened in the U S where there were communities of color that had really succeeded at building wealth. They own their own property. They own their own businesses and they were destroyed. And so now this is in the lifetime of my grandmother. Now, had she, she was a white woman whose father went to Yale, you know, like she had a very different experience. She is still living in a, in a, a, a senior care home on his money. And her financial stories are influenced by the people and the lives of the people around her. And my financial stories are influenced by the stories of her and those who came after her. And yet someone else of the same age as me looks back in their grandparent may have had their business and their home taken away from them. Now, what story does that tell them about the possibility of getting ahead and winning this game? Right. And what stories have I been told with uh, you know, being the, the, uh, having ancestors that, I mean, ancestors, my great grandfather was an inventor. You know, when I learned that story, I felt amazingly empowered. Well, if he could do it and I have those genes, then maybe I could do it too, you know? And there's those stories, whether you believe empowering stories about the role that money and, and it's not, it's not even just the role of money. It's where you're starting from and what you believe the landscape of opportunity for you is. And it's not all in our heads. A lot of it is learned experience. And when you have people who um, have deeply internalized stories that at their root say, you cannot change your situation. You do not have power. The power of how your life goes is in the hands of others or the world around you. That ex psychologists call it an external locus of control. Mm. And it is linked to so many health and psychological and financial problems. And yet it's, it's not, you know, we look at the behavior of someone who's disengaged and, and you know, checked out and avoidant of their finances. And we say, oh, that's a problematic behavior. They're not paying attention. Well, maybe deep down they believe it doesn't matter whether I do or not because I can't get ahead. And so I believe that the real power of empowerment-based financial education is being able to reach people Understanding the stories that they are, where they are in their own story now, and not saying, no, that's not true. Of course it's true. Yes, it happened. But in spite of, or yes, and, because you have those challenges, because your story is unique, you, with your specific obstacles to overcome, are going to be so proud of yourself when you do it. And so to me, empowerment-based financial education is about 
understanding the stories and not saying that they're wrong or that they're ill-informed, but figuring out how to make the future of the story one in which you are the hero of that story and you have learned how to take your resources, overcome those obstacles, and create a life you love within the confines of the resources that you have. Is that all? <laughs> easy, right? <laughs> easy. <laughs> um, this resonates with me on two levels, um, Sarah. One is uh, my father was a financial advisor and he came from fairly humble backgrounds and he did quite well for himself for a period. Um, and then he lost everything. He went bankrupt. And um, he lost the house and lived in a flat and, and, it, and it deeply affected him. Um, and I, re I realized um, later on in life, like only 10 years ago, that his source of pride was external, was material, mm -hmm. materialistic. Mm -hmm. um, and so when that went, he lost his pride. He was a, he was a ruined man forever. Um, mm -hmm. And when that happened, when I went through that with him at the age of 25, I was determined not to be a victim of life. That was a phrase that I had in my head. Mm -hmm. I won't be a victim of life. These are stories, aren't they? These are the sort of stories you're talking about. Um, I won't go through how that affected, well, it's pretty obvious how that affected what I do with my life because I spend my time talking about money and happiness and uh, the, how it can be positive and how it can be negative, you know, because I went through that myself. So there's a direct correlation there between my money story and my activity and my actions. Um, are money stories going to be bad for us? So, I mean, it really depends on the story. And I don't think that, I think that some of the, you know, we all have stories, whether we realize it or not, we're all telling ourselves stories. There is a narrative there. Um, some are true, some are not. Some are useful, some are not. Some are healthy, some are not. But I think when it really comes down to is, um, is that the, when it comes to stories that empower us, stories that help us to live lives that we love, that help us to be the people we want to be, we must be the hero of that story. Uh, we can't be the the non-playing character in our own story. That is just so disempowering. Um, the one in Star Trek that always get killed off. That, that, yeah, yeah. You're not a, we're not you're not the red shirt in your story. Um but but I think that especially so for example, yes, so just to pick up on my own story, um so my great grandfather was this inventor. Um, he he actually helped invent the technology of um, adding sound to film for motion picture. Um, his his house it was a museum in Auburn, New York, for a while. Now, in just before the Great Depression hit, he sold his patents to a guy you may have heard of named Fox. <laughs> And because my grand, my great grandfather was not a businessman, he was an inventor. He was a scientist, and he didn't want to do the business side of things. And so he sold his patent for a song, and uh, and some stock. And then the Great Depression hit, and so while my grandmother is has survived off of the tail end of his wealth, um, it definitely his wealth um, and my family's history. Um, continued to perpetuate the myth of, you know, wealth has gone in three generations because by the time my parents um, were adults, there was no money to speak of uh, for them. And they had, they both came from exhausted wealth and um, both had some psychological chips on their shoulders about wealth and what it meant to be wealthy and um, without realizing it, passed on some um, really judgmental beliefs to me about the wealthy and about wealth. And so I inherited some very strong beliefs that, um, that money was, has a corrupting force, has a corrupting power, that money is, um, is not something that we should um, think about too much or focus on having because that shows a lack of um, healthy priorities. So there were some stories that I internalized about money that really encouraged me to avoid it, to um, 
to not focus on it. And what I had to learn through experience was that by internaling those, internalizing the message that, <clears throat> excuse me, that money itself has corrupting force that focusing on it makes you, uh, you know, reveals that you must have a greedy and, and sinful heart. Um, I had to recognize that those beliefs were leading me to maintain poverty, to stay in poverty. And, um, and that so long as I didn't have enough, I was actually a slave to money. I was thinking about it all the time. Because if you don't have enough, plus some slack, you can't afford to make a mistake. You must be vigilant. And it is absolutely exhausting. And there's nothing morally wrong with, with being poor, but it does wreak havoc on your body and mind. Mm. Um, and so, um, so the point of that is that, you know, it, each one of our inherited narratives, um, needs to just be examined. And when I examined mine, I saw that I both desired and feared money and wealth. And that that cocktail of fear and desire was leading to some uh, self-sabotaging behaviors. And that once I saw that, then I was able to I was then able to make the choice of whether I wanted to perpetuate that behavior or not. But, and it didn't happen immediately. But now, when I saw myself doing those things, I understood I, I could be more conscious of the why. And then I, I love what Young said um, that until we make the unconscious conscious, it will rule our lives and we will call it fate. And I think that's, we do that with money narratives all the time. Yeah. Um, so understanding your financial narrative is the key to um, crafting one that serves you rather than you serving the narrative unconsciously. Okay. Um, how? Mm. So I think that there's um, there's a really useful uh, framework in um, narrative psychology. Um and some really interesting research on this. If anybody feels like going down a rabbit hole, you can just um, go to Google Scholar and look up narrative psychology. Um, but one thing that repeated research has shown over, I think, about three decades now is that when people, uh, when researchers examine the narratives that people tell themselves about their life, they tend to fall into two categories. So yeah, each one of our stories is different and complex, but it's going to fall into one of two categories, right? And even within these two categories, they all have the same beginning and middle. It's only the ending of the story that's different, okay? And the ending being present moment, what's happening present moment. So when you ask people to tell the story of their life up to this point, they all have the same beginning and middle. And it goes like this. I was going along just fine, and then big ugly thing happened. Okay, so that's the beginning in the middle. Now, one type of narrative from after the big ugly thing, this is called the contamination narrative. And it says, I was going along in life and then big ugly thing happened. Now, big dad, ugly thing. Hmm? My dad goes bankrupt, right? I've just done it myself, haven't I? Exactly. The big ugly yep. thing happened, right? It was big. It was ugly. It happened. Now, it might have been being born into a, into you know uh, being born with brown skin in a country where that's a really big problem. Um, it could have been going bankrupt. It could have been anything, but it was big and it was ugly and it was real and it happened. Okay, contamination narrative says big ugly thing happened and nothing is as it should be as a result. It contaminated the story of my life. That's narrative number one. Now, probably no surprise to you that that contamination narrative is strongly correlated with things like depression, uh, high blood pressure, lower life satisfaction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, holding all the demographics constant, right? People who are in the same income group, the same um, age, the same education, like the same, uh, you know, those, the same situational factors, holding all that constant. If you just look at the group that has the contamination narrative, they are less happy, uh, less healthy, and um, and more more prone to 
um, health problems and mental health problems. Okay, second narrative is called the redemption narrative. And this says big ugly thing happened. It was big, it was ugly. It was just as big and ugly as in the contamination narrative. But the story goes on to say, big ugly thing happened. And as a result, I had to grow and become a stronger person. And my, I am now more of who I want to be as a result because I had to grow. And that's the redemption story. And that is the hero's story. So, so the redemption story can take many, many forms. But the one thing is that you are the hero of it. And, and it generally, and it doesn't negate the big ugly thing. I think that's the important thing is it doesn't gloss over it. It doesn't say it didn't happen. It doesn't say it wasn't big and ugly and create incredible challenges. But, but as a result, not in spite of, as a result of those challenges, you became your own hero. I am, and, I am I am so getting this because this is this this is exactly what's happened with my father going bankrupt. Is it? it, it I set up a business uh, which was all about um, passive income and was and and grew slowly and organically. And I spend my time now uh, helping people to find happiness, not just accumulate wealth. So absolutely, I, I fit your mold perfectly. How do you fit your mold? So um, for me, um, I had to give up on my deepest. Uh, dreams when I was in my 20s. I um, I was an opera singer. I was an actress. And there was uh, I was accepted into the New England Conservatory for opera, which is a very uh, elite program for opera. And yet my family didn't have the money for it. I was not able to pursue that dream. And the the it was it was a combination, obviously, of choices I made. And um, and restrictions, financial restrictions in my life at the time, that I was not able to pursue the career of being an opera singer. Now, I did go out and I sang on the streets of Portland, Maine, and I I actually got a job singing um, singing at an Italian restaurant. Um, and yet, and, and I found my 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 opera teacher found me singing on the street and said, I want to train your voice. And a year later, I was in the the I, I was accepted in the conservatory, but there was no funding for that dream. And anyway, so my dreams sort of died on the vine. And um, it was a it's something I still grieve. Um, but what I have done as a result is um, build a life where, you know, it started with. Um, with going going to university when I was finally able to take out student loans without a co-signer. And in the U.S., you have to wait till you're 24. So I finally went to college when I was 24. Uh, I fell in love with math and um, and got a degree in math. And by 28, I was uh, I graduated with a with high honors in in math. And um, but I was still poor, and I still couldn't get my finances together, even though. I had, I, I love numbers. So I, I have turned my, rather than using my artistic talent, which I now, I sing, I sang this morning in my, in my house and loved it. And I do, I sing now for pleasure and not for my uh, bread and butter. But what I've done is I realized the other asset that I had was my intellectual curiosity and my problem solving um, obsession. And I just got really, really curious about what was motivating, what was behind my own financial issues. And then once I started to see that, I became so, my, my internal fire got charged up with the purpose, this feeling of purpose of, I don't want to manage other people's money. At this point, what I want to do is I want to help other people who are also smart and hardworking and trying and getting in their own way and they don't know why. I want to help them get unstuck. And so as a result of, of my um, artistic dreams being crushed, I have developed my mind in ways I never would have before. And I have a sense of purpose now 
that is more focused on other people and less focused on myself. And I think in the long run is, is a lot more uh, fulfilling. Um, I still am not happy if I'm not singing, but I can sing anywhere. Yeah. 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 So, so look, this, um, these stories then, these money stories, uh, how can people recognize their own money stories? I mean, I, with the way you talk, I recognize one in me very easily, but we must have many, many money oh, stories sure. that affect us. Sure, so sure. How can people recognize their own money stories? And in particular, the, the ones that are important to be noticing, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. I think that um, there are a couple sort of simple questions you could ask yourself to get started. And sometimes it's just about kind of cracking a nut and then you you can dig out uh some meat from there but so one one question that i've found um helps some people is uh just thinking you know in terms of a lot of our stories fall into the category of money is good or money is bad on the whole right so if you just gut level how do you feel about money is it good or is it bad and then whichever one why? Who gave, who told you, who, where does that come from? Who is it that's been, that was, who is it or what was it that comes to mind when you think that here's the evidence for why money is good, or here's the evidence for why money is bad. This is, this is my reasoning. And in there, there'll probably be a person or an event. And once you see the person or the event, you can go, okay, now we're, now we're getting somewhere. And getting so started, let me think yeah. about this person, or let me think about this thing. Yeah. Well, what I particularly like about that, I've noticed recently that every time I ask somebody a question, which has got two alternatives, they ask for a third. <laughs> yep. So yeah. if you say, no, you're only allowed good. We know life is more nuanced than that. But this question is money, good or bad. That's it. You have to yeah. give it one answer to the other. And if, and if your answer is it's neutral, it's a tool. Okay. So you are probably more of the um, intellectual um uh, you're more of you're probably more of an analytical mind, um, and you see money as a tool. Now that's still why do you believe that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. and and who who has been the most influential, or what has been the most influential in that? And even if you find that it's you know if if you're someone who says, look, I don't understand why everybody's so emotional about money. It is a tool. It's logical. What you need to understand is that just reveals that you are a logical and emotional person, you probably value the idea of being a logical, non-emotional person. And so for you, your money stories are, you may be aiming to take the emotion out and that's fine. That's who you are, no. but that just knowing that's who you are and that's your story and that's subjective may help you understand why you might come in conflict with people who don't value non-emotional decisions as much, who yeah. feel that emotions actually are part of the cost-benefit analysis. And recognizing that that's all this is, is cost-benefit analysis, but we put different costs and benefits on things. And some people really value, really, really want to consider the emotional costs and benefits, and some people don't. And that is a personal decision. And that, again, is the story of who you are. Who who do you want to be? Um, so even if you're saying money's neutral, money's just a tool, well, that is your story. And um, for others, money is absolutely not neutral. It has a lot of cultural and emotional significance. And it's not something that people want to take out of the equation because it feels very real to them. Yeah. Yeah. We had um, the marvelous Dr. Moira Summers on the podcast a little while ago. And uh, she was very keen to make the point about behavioral biases and behavioral finance, that we have these behaviors to keep us safe. They're not all bad. We shouldn't mm. go about this saying, you know, behavioral biases um, mean that they're, that, that they're mistakes. And I think you're saying the same thing about our money stories. It, so it feels to me like there's a last step in the process here, which is understand what money stories are, understand our money stories, then we've got to understand the money stories which are actually just making us who we are and okay. And if there are some money stories that are making us unhappy. Yes. Right? And so I think that's okay one of, yeah, I think that that's one of the biggest things that you can ask yourself is once you identify a money story and, and a money story can be as simple as, um, you know, 
finish the sentence. Money is blank. And in this case, it's not good or bad. Money is freedom. Money is power. Money is the root of all evil. What is it that comes to mind when you think money is blank? That's a story. Now, you just have to ask yourself, okay, now, it, true or not is a good question, um, but a hard question because true with a capital T is uh, notoriously difficult, um, but useful or not, is it serving you well or not? Is it helping you feel like you are becoming and you can be the person you want to be in your life or not? And if the answer is not, then it's very powerful to recognize it's only a story and a story can change. You have control over how you translate the events that created that story for you. And um, small changes in perception and in the way we, um, the conclusions we draw because of evidence can change a disempowering story into an empowering one. Um, and I just really, I believe <laughs> that we will be happier in life if we can train our minds to cling to the stories that empower us and train our minds to rewrite the ones that don't. I just, this is, this is almost going to be rude of me, Sarah, but I would like to offer a slight alteration to that narrative. Please, please. Well, I'm a writer. Um, I've actually uh, decided to start introducing myself at parties as a writer because I realise I spend all day writing. So why not? So I'm changing my story, hmm. right? Um, except because I'm a writer and I write books, it's a bit like painting. When is the painting finished? You can hmm. always add another stroke to it. When is a book finished? You know, you've written books. You've got, you can always go back to it and prove that, that line there or that and a word there. Um, so actually, we're not changing our money stories. They're just not finished yet. Mm-hmm. They're still mm-hmm. being written, you know. Yeah, I do love that actually. And one of the one of the things that I um, I can't remember where I read this, but I saw it recently, and it was to embrace the power of the word "yet." Yes. You know, when someone says, um, you know, uh, I, I actually recently um, uh, was speaking with a couple of people who are homeless in my area, and one of them, you know, he was saying he's he's been going through a job training program and getting. Um, you know, sober and he's doing great. And, uh, but he, you know, at one point he said something along the lines of like, yeah, life just didn't, you know, just hasn't worked out for me. And I said, yet life hasn't worked out for you yet. And it, the power of that word. I love it. I love it. I haven't played cricket for England yet. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Sarah, that's really powerful stuff. And I love the idea that our money stories are still being written, um, that they don't end. That not because my dad went bankrupt, that maybe the person I am, I can now become a different person if I choose to be. That story is still going, um, which I love. Uh, look, thank you so much for joining us. I could talk to you for absolutely hours. Maybe we should get you on again to talk about another aspect of your work. But uh, thank you so much for joining us, Sarah. Thank you. That's wonderful. Well, that was a really good interview, Chris. Isn't she awesome? Oh, brilliant, brilliant, and and obviously you were you were very candid with some of the things that you shared in there, which is all I think always helpful for us, for us listeners, because um, it helps not only put a bit of a, an ex, a real life example to it, because that's always helpful in explaining, but but I think really hammered home the point of how it affects, you know, all of us really in in yeah. various different yeah. ways. So look. Um, I don't know if you want to answer this question, Tomo, but do you have a big, ugly thing that happened? Uh, big, ugly. Do you know, I, I was listening to this podcast and I don't, I don't know, or I don't think I have, or I don't, it's not, not aware people, of it. Yet. <laughs> not aware of it. And this is the point she talks about is it is, is part of it is understanding your story and acknowledging the obstacles. Now, I think maybe, I try and think of the big, big hairy one. I think does. Now I wouldn't say it's big and hairy. I think it's just quite common for a lot of people that she talks about how being not having a lot of money can be quite exhausting. I think she mentioned it at some point. And I remember when I first left university. Obviously, being a student, you're not exactly uh, 
got lots of lots of cash, but you make do. You're all kind of in it together, aren't you? With with not a lot of money. But then I remember my first job at university. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life, and it was in financial services. It's kind of how I fell into this whole gig. But it was what I thought was okay pay, but it was minimum wage, and that also coupled with this feeling of not wanting to live live back home. I wanted to, this sense of independence, and I moved in with with friends and you know rented a room with them. Well, I had a room in, in a house a house share with them, but money was tight. I had to really learn how to budget really carefully. Granted, it was only me I was having to to look after because I was on minimum wage. And that absolutely took quite a few years to unpick when I started to earn more money and my my whole tight ass Tomo, right? That that was, uh, quite frankly, a real thing. Now it's a joke because I have learned a huge amount. (laughs) All right, I have my moments. But I guess maybe there is an element, I started to acknowledge this this obstacle, this big scary thing. And I don't want to say it's big and scary because people go through that, it wasn't, traumatic it was just an experience ugly ugly was the word you ugly that's ugly. sorry sorry thank you ugly experience there i wouldn't say it was ugly i just didn't have a lot of money yeah. and i learned to live in a very tight way and it's taken quite a long time to unpick that and funny enough going through this podcast going through the whole learning around financial well-being and quite frankly earning more money has enabled me to to start to grow learn, learn what do you say redemption narrative yeah, yeah. Chance to grow and be stronger. Yeah, and and actually, of course, that's the important thing, isn't it? Because as we've talked about these podcasts so often, it depends if your behaviour, whether we're talking behavioural biases, cognitive, cognitive biases, or, or the big ugly thing that happened. I love, by the way, she kept saying it was big, it's ugly, and it happened. <laughs> she said that several times. I love that. Um, is it causing? Is it leading to poor outcomes? Now, your Titus Tomo is a story. Right, mm. as he was talking about stories, that's one of the stories that, that you tell yourself about yourself, and we will tell about you. Um, <laughs> but it's not a, necessarily a bad thing. Possibly the story where you got Lindsay to buy shoes too small for her to say VAT. Maybe that wasn't the best. But generally speaking, you know, being a bit careful with money—that's not a bad. That's not creating poor outcomes, is it? So that redemption narrative is quite a positive thing, I think. Maybe. Mm, mm, I think you're. I think you're probably right, but I, I still recognise it. It's funny, actually, really thinking about that question you just asked me. Still recognise it from time to time. In, in a, you know, I've now got more responsibilities with with you know my earnings and 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 you know looking after a family. That yeah, when we, there's a bit of money spent, I have to. Tr- I see myself going back to that place, and I have to yeah. kind of pull myself back and go. Do you know what? It's okay. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it. it yeah, maybe I'm sure there's more to it than just simply having to live on a on a smaller wage. But yeah, it's, that's maybe my ugly, ugly yeah. thing. But the other thing that that she said is something that I'm uh, I love doing at dinner parties, right? And it's first happened at a dinner party when somebody was saying talking about politics, which is always a dangerous subject, uh, and they made a sweeping statement, uh, something on the lines of everybody who's unemployed is choosing to be unemployed. They could always get up and get a job if they wanted to. And um, that's a kind of certain economic narrative, which I struggle with a little. Um, and I just asked a simple question. Could I ask for your evidence for that? And of course, she had absolutely no evidence whatsoever. Um, but it's a great question to ask, not just in awkward dinner parties. But but if we have this story that or this belief, you know, one of the things that, that uh, I think I mentioned this in the very first um, Financial Wellbeing book, that beliefs are not truths. So if you have a belief, especially if it's leading to a poor outcome, what is the evidence for your belief? That's such a powerful question, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's to prove it, isn't it? Yeah, it's to prove yeah, it. Prove and it. I, I, only this week I've had several occasions sitting in, in planning meetings where I'm hearing, I'm hearing this, I'm hearing these beliefs come back at me. I say, and it is, so have you tested that? Oh, no. Okay, well... Should should we? Yeah, that'd be and and it's positive. They're going, yeah. There's kind of crying out for it to be proved. Sometimes I think people sometimes say these beliefs out loud because they want somebody to either prove them or not. Um, maybe I, one thing picking up on what she said about some of the language she heard when she was growing up. I really hit home because I, as I've alluded to in this podcast already, I've got two children under the age of of seven. And they are in very 
impressionable years of their lives. And I do worry sometimes about subconsciously the things that they pick up around my own discussions around finances or the way that I might flippantly make a comment about something. I'm struggling to give an exact example, but I'm really worried about the things that I say in my relationship with money might have a detrimental impact on on them in the future. And it may also have it may also have a positive impact. Oh, yeah, I said it's funny you should say that. Why am I automatically going to the to the worry inside of it that hopefully some of the things that, that I talk about will have a positive impact? Um, I, I think uh, you can't worry too much about such things. You know, I, I've certainly seen um, people that I know who I thought of, I'll be honest with you, terrible parents. Um, and their kids have been quite horrible kids at times, but they've all grown up to be really good adults. We, we work our way through. You know, I don't think you can take on too much of that as a parent, to be honest. Oh, it makes um, me feel better now, so I just say what I want and <laughs> let the damage just be the damage, right? <laughs> I know that's not what you're saying, but that sounds no. far easier. <laughs> well, listen, uh, Sarah, I think, was an absolutely fantastic guest. I would be really tempted to get her on again, actually. Her book, mm. Loaded, um, which she published in 2016, uh, so she's been an early adopter of a lot of these kind of principles, and uh, I think she's absolutely fascinating lady. So, um, yeah, thanks, Sarah. And uh, thank you, Tomo. Thank you, Tammy. And we're all off to play Colditz. See you next time on the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. Do I pass the audition? If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. You can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellbeing. Chris is Ovation Chris and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think.